Well, I think obviously there is some sort of pattern in there. The fact that we are seeing this uh, in a significant degree over the past week uh, is a cause for uh, interest and, and uh, 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 close attention, uh, which is exactly what we're doing. We've employed signif deployed significant resources here uh, to be able to recover the, uh, the object. Well, that is the Prime Minister speaking today about the object that was shot down over Yukon. In fact, the Prime Minister is in Yukon uh, meeting with uh, northern leaders, but clearly addressing the big story. Yet another object shot down in North American airspace, the third in recent days, the fourth, including that uh, presumed uh, Chinese spy balloon from, from just over a week ago. We're not referring to these other objects as spy balloons. We don't know what they are. I don't know that they really appear to be uh, spy balloons. But the description, uh, you know, one was described as kind of octagon shape. The other described more like a cylinder. So these do seem different. The common thread here is that they're in the sky, potentially in the path of, of commercial aviation traffic, at least at the altitude they're flying at. So there's, there's some concern. These were deemed a threat. They were shot down. This one over the Yukon over the weekend identified by uh, NORAD authorities, but it was the prime minister's call to shoot it down, even though it was American fighter jets that did it. So what are we to make of all of this? What, what is going on here? Is, is there some new pattern emerging, some new behavior going on here by is China, Russia, somebody else? Are we finding things in this guy that we just weren't looking for previous? So a lot of questions still about all of this. And, and the first step is identifying these objects and now going out and finding the wreckage of what we shot down and trying to figure out what it was from there, who put it there. And I guess we go from there. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. James Ferguson, who's uh, Deputy Director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies, also Professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Ferguson, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be able to talk to you. I mean, part of what we're trying to discern here, I guess, is whether there's more of this going on, whether NORAD is simply casting a, a wider net, maybe finding things they, they wouldn't have previously been looking for. What, what's your sense of what's going on here, first of all? It, it's really difficult to know. There's so much lack of information uh, coming out of the governments and the defense departments. Uh, so we're left to speculate. Uh, this has been sort of a new occurrence, as if, if it's been going on in the past... And, of course, they mentioned the Trump years there were, but it seems the Trump administration didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly. I don't know. I think the Chinese today said that the Americans have been sending balloons over them. It's all possible. Highly classified intelligence gathering uh, uh, missions, as far as I can see. Uh, so possibly, yes. Maybe this is a one-off, two-off. But, of course, trying to figure out the sequencing of this one makes the news and then suddenly a week later mm -hmm. when it's still in the news there's three more it's hard to figure out what the sequence is now one thing i would add would clarify is that the most recent one was shot down over lake huron uh it's hard to imagine how far it came if it was coming from china or russia in the east or possibly russia across the pole to the south uh, going over Lake Huron. It could be possible this is something that's a domestic problem. Right. Uh, there's concerns about drones, for example, around airports domestically. Uh, so that doesn't become a military issue. That becomes a police and regulatory issue. The other three, 
it's difficult to know what objective is being served. Mm-hmm. What are they going to get out of this? And one of the reasons I say that is they're not going to be likely there to take pictures uh, because the major players all have spy satellites. They can see all this on regular orbital paths. Uh, So it doesn't seem that. The best guess is that what they're doing is signals intelligence, trying to listen in to communication systems, part of trying to be able to decrypt uh, codes, etc., that may be their their motive behind this. Again, we just don't have an idea, and we won't have an idea until both Canada and the United States collect the debris and do some research on it to find out what exactly is going on. Right. There's a lot that goes into this, and, and maybe we think that it's simple. We see something in the sky, we shoot it down, we go pick it up, we, we see what it is. But this whole process of identifying these objects, making the decision about you know how and whether to shoot them down, and then going to try to find this debris, often in remote areas or, or over lakes, as you mentioned, there's a lot involved in this, isn't there? Oh, there's a great deal involved. Now, one of the interesting things, if this is a sort of a new occurrence, and again, we don't know, because uh, if it isn't, it's been highly classified, is the extent to which the radar sensor network in North America that feeds into NORAD, both in Canada and the United States, uh, whether it's been really calibrated to look for balloons. It, it's primarily looking at for fast, relatively fast-moving uh, cruise missiles, potentially you now hypersonics, and of course ballistic missiles. Uh, so many ways it depends what they're looking for trying to sort of push away all the things that aren't expected and now this may have resulted in recalibrations to make sure they can see these things now right and what does it tell us about norad's focus which maybe traditionally over the years or decades has been sort of looking outward at what might be coming toward us but also being able to recognize what might also exist within north american airspace and in terms of potential threats well, that, by and large, has been rectified after 9-11. Right. So one of the first steps after the 9-11, because you were dead right, NORAD just looked out, looked at external threats coming into North America, military threats primarily. Uh, after 9-11, one of the first steps both Canada and the United States took in agreement was to link in all the domestic radar feeds uh, from the FAA in the United States and from NAV Canada up here so these are now all fed in. So they have a real internal and external 360-degree picture of what's in the air. Now, this becomes a challenge because you've got to have the processing system to be able to uh, sort all this out because you have now more and more feeds going in. And with the coming Nordic modernization, you're going to get more. And, yes, it becomes a very difficult process. Uh, we hear the public gets, oh, there was a balloon. It got shot down. But... There's a lot more behind the scenes going on uh, uh, in dealing with this problem, which is not yeah. a major threat, by the way. Well, that's the thing. What, what constitutes a threat? Because part of this is trying to discern you know, who sent the object, what their intention might be. Then there's the consideration of just clutter in the skies, threats to, to airplanes, for example. So there's a lot even that just goes into that assessment, right? You're correct. There is a lot that goes into this assessment. But generally, for NORAD... And this may be one of the reasons that the, there was initial problem in tracking this. For NORAD, primarily, it's external military threats. Those are its primary concerns. And also internal hijacking a la 9-11, those types of threats. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when you get into the internal world, 
that partially could, that is a NORAD mission because it's responsible for the air defense of all of North America, whether internally or externally or uh, rooted. Uh, but now you're getting into when, say, for example, as I mentioned earlier, when publics are flying drones around around airports, that becomes a policing problem now. So yeah. you need to secure have the security arrangement, and that still works well for NORAD at least from the American contribution, because they have FAA people in NORAD headquarters. We don't have anyone there. We haven't sent any NAV Canada people down to NORAD headquarters. Uh, And that's an important potential gap that we need to fix. Well, yeah, and I think there are some gaps that people have pointed to in terms of our own capabilities. This seems to illustrate the benefits, certainly to Canada, of NORAD, the situation in Yukon, for example, where the prime minister makes the call, but it's U.S. fighter jets that, that take down the objects. So I guess that's NORAD working as it's supposed to. But how could Canada maybe doing be doing more of the heavy lifting here? Well, I don't think it's a case of Canada doing more of the heavy lifting. And I think we need to back away from this. It was an American fighter that shot down a balloon over Canadian territory. Because mm-hmm. one of the things about the NORAD binational arrangement, uh, on whether it's the warning side or the interception side, the defense side, is it's better to think both countries, let me put it this way, both countries commit X number of fighters to NORAD command on a yearly basis. And these usually are not on alert. In Canada's case, they're Cold Lake and Bagotville, and the Americans at Elmendorf and their own bases. Uh, but when you commit them to NORAD, they're under NORAD command now, which is a binational command. And although it's commanded by American, the deputy commander is a Canadian, and many times the Canadian's in charge, as the Canadian was on 9-11, right. not the American. And so when this is, they get the order or they pass on the threat to the National Command Authority, and if it's in Canadian territory, the Prime Minister has to know, he says, yes, do this, then the NORAD operational side kicks in. And they're going to look at, well, where is the interceptors we possess, basically located, and which is the most efficient, who's available, which is the most efficient way to do this. So basically, when you think of NORAD, you shouldn't think of, oh, that was an American fighter with an American markings on it. Or if it was in the case of Canada, it's a Canadian fighter with Canadian markers on it. It's really to think these are North American interceptors. Yeah. And that's what we have to think of. And that's the great value of the NORAD command structure. Yeah, indeed. Highly integrated and and certainly works well for both countries in in that sense. So as we look in the days ahead here, Jim, what what are you going to be watching for in terms of getting some more clarity on, on all of this? Well, we have to wait until whatever the both countries agree, because they'll have to agree on this. Uh, and, of course, sometimes both sides don't necessarily inform each other. Mm-hmm. We have to wait and see what they tell us in the public domain. And until then, once they do, and again, how much detail they'll provide in terms of national security versus national security classification reasons, we don't know. But we, we can just speculate right now. But as I said earlier... There was a bit of hysteria with the first balloon attached to it. Uh, and it's important to remember this is a problem, a security problem for North America, Canada, United States, but it's not a military threat to us. And, of course, the motives may be just political. One of the guesses made in, 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 from the academic world last week was this was all designed by the Chinese military to scuttle uh, Blinken's trip to meet uh, the Chinese leader. Right. I, I find that hard to believe, but it may have just political messages behind it. Yeah. 
we won't know until someone gives us a little more information. And it will come out. It will leak itself out. Just a matter of time. Indeed. We'll leave it there. Some great insight, Professor Ferguson. Thanks again for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. My pleasure. That's uh, Dr. James Ferguson, University of Manitoba Deputy Director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies. So that's where things are at today. A lot of questions still about what's going on with these objects. How many more to come? We'll find out, I guess. I did uh, indicate that the R-Star, as it was proposed at that time, didn't align with uh, Alberta's polluter pay principle and the royalty framework. But with respect to the pilot program that's uh, being being looked at by energy, I think you'd have to direct those questions to them. Now, that was the uh, Environment Minister uh, for the province of Alberta, Sonia Savage, asked today about what appears to be a pilot project that her government is going to embark on. Now, R-STAR is what's been uh, the term that's been referred to or used to refer to this this program, which is essentially about providing royalty credits to oil and gas companies to clean up their old wells. Uh, Previously, in 2021, before Daniel Smith got back into politics, uh, she urged the Alberta government to consider this approach. She wrote at the time, and this was the letter that Sonia Savage was reacting to, and she'd rejected it at the time. But the idea that if the government provided $20 billion in R-Star credits, the dual activity of decommissioning and closure combined with new drilling activity would generate 366,000 jobs and $8.5 billion in new royalty revenue. Whether that's an accurate assessment or not, I suppose, is open for debate. But there is the principle here. If companies are already obligated to do something, that is to clean up these wells, Why should they be rewarded for doing so? Does it punish companies that have already done it? Does it incentivize companies to delay doing it? So is there an environmental downside in terms of the, in in addition to rather the the potential financial downside here of, of an expensive program? So it appears as though, as mentioned, that this is going to be tried as a pilot project. But there is a growing opposition to this. It was interesting to see, by the way, the Bank of Nova Scotia in a research note late last week, pointing to some of the problems with this approach, that this could perpetuate negative views about the energy industry, could be used by critics as an example of government fossil fuel subsidies. And that going down this path violates the core capitalist principle that private companies should take full responsibility for the liabilities they willingly accept. So joining us to talk about some of the legal and environmental ramifications of this approach uh, is uh, Martin Olszynski, an associate professor of law at the University of Calgary, focusing on environmental and natural resource law. Professor Olszynski, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Well, I mean, are you, are you surprised at all, first of all, at, uh, at the growing uh, amount of criticism here? What, what are your concerns with what the government has planned? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm not... I mean, it's always tricky, right, in Alberta. <clears throat> I think we have it certainly sort of like a, a very strong predisposition to accept uh, the oil and gas industry as a good thing. Uh, And certainly it has generated a lot of wealth over the past uh, almost century now, I think. Um, Maybe, I mean, not quite, that's probably 80 years or so. But anyways, you know, so no doubt about that, right? That there has been a lot of wealth. But all along, and certainly for the past 40 years, there's been this growing recognition that, you know, that we, we like to, drill wells we like to profit from uh production but we don't like to clean up 
And nobody likes to clean up, right? That's sort of like maybe a, a basic idea and something that most people can agree on. But, but, but yeah, and yet that cleaning up has to happen. And there was a bargain that was made and has been made all along that, you know, industry will pay for that cleanup when they're done, right? right? But, but, but for decades, you know, when there are some fairly obvious ways of ensuring that cleanup in a fairly timely manner, um, you know, both government and industry have resisted implementing those measures, and we can talk about those in a second, um, with the effect that we just had this, like, massive piling up. You know, we just kept kicking the can down the road and kicking it down the road and kicking it down the road to the point where it's become just this massive, massive liability problem. Um, you know, and, and my own view is that, you know, at some point, you know, there, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, these were like, you know, like Scotiabank pointed out, these were liabilities willfully assumed. Uh, and, and so, like at this stage, they just, they have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with and they have to be dealt with by the industry. Uh, and, and, and especially when we're in this like super high price environment and, and high profitability environment, you know, it's I mean, myself and others have been talking about this file for, again, like for a long time. But I remember even maybe like a decade ago, you know, like 2014, of course, prices went down. And so everybody told us, well, we can't do this now. Prices are terrible. Well, it's like, well, well, prices are, are pretty stable right now, pretty good. And we've had a record year. You know, if now is not the time to tackle this problem, I don't know. It would sound like it seems like there's never a good time. Right. And, and I mean, the status of these sites that need to be cleaned up and there's some significant differences between what would be considered an abandoned site versus an orphan well. And we do have the Orphan Wells Association. There are companies that have liabilities of their own, maybe a situation where a company is stepping in to take on a different liability. So all these these factors come into play. But through it all, does it seem like this project does or this pilot project would incentivize companies to clean up what they themselves are already obligated to clean up yeah so absolutely so it's it's like you and i um driving the speed limit and asking to be paid to do so you know like saying you know like yeah there's a speed limit we tend to speed every once in a while maybe you know but it would really help us it would incentivize us if you would pay us also to not go above the speed limit right so it, so we're like it's and, and this is something that i said over the weekend speaking with uh the global mail like there's a huge problem here in terms of you know i think in economics we refer to this as a moral hazard like when you create regulatory environments with essentially rather than and having an incentive against certain kinds of risks it does the opposite it almost incentivizes people to take those risks because they know they won't be held accountable for them and so you know one of the things that we have to ask ourselves i think in alberta is you know, not only is it sustainable in insofar as the oil and gas sector is concerned, I'm going to suggest to you it's not. Why would any company do anything more than the bare minimum right now in terms of their own reclamation liabilities if they can look to this pilot program and say, well, well, let's hang tight and we'll get paid to clean these things up later anyway, mm-hmm. right? So there's a huge problem there. But then what about other sectors? Why would any sector take its reclamation liability seriously if they can't just point to the oil and gas sector and say, well, like you did it for them, so why, why is it any different for us? And, and we know that that's the case. We know that there's still landscape scarring in, on the eastern slopes related to the exploration around the, the coal mining bonanza that never was or that is in abeyance or it's hard to know what's going on there. But there's been reporting done. Um, we know there are still uh, seismic lines, roads, all kinds of sort of scars in the landscape that aren't being dealt with. And so 
we have to, you know, it's, it's a real problem. And we have to cons- like ask ourselves, I think as Albertans, like what kind of industry, when we're, you know, everyone's interested in economic development, that goes without saying, but what kind of economic development are we talking about here? Are we really at the point where we're prepared to say, you know, you, pr- you, you produced the oil and gas, you made your record profits, but now when it comes to cleanup, like, fine, you, yeah, you, you, you can just walk away or, or we'll pay you. I guess we have to incentivize you to do that thing which you agreed to legally to, to be bound by in the first place. Right. So there's there's a lot of potential risk here in terms of, you know, not just the environmental risk of, of delaying action, but really the, the kind of precedent we'd be setting here. That's exactly it, right? And, and you know, you hear about, you know, this and this is the other thing that's just really frustrating about this is, like, there's just a lot of obfuscation, like a lot of, uh, frankly, like what seems like an attempt to mislead Albertans. You know, I've heard that line many times now. Wow, we could really accelerate. We could really uh, accelerate well cleanup. We've got these wells that have been around for decades. So first of all, I think it's really important to point out that, that with this pilot program, when you look at the eligibility criteria, you know, I, I think the premier said at one point she made a reference to wells before 1980. The criteria was, and first of all, the criteria is super discretionary. It's it's hard to know how it's going to be weighed, but they make reference to wells that are more than 20 years old. But but I don't even know. Like, so so maybe that means that they are that you know if you're older than 20 years. But so first of all, that's 2022, 22 or 2002, 2003. So not not 1980. Um, but it's also not clear from those eligibility criteria that that's, you know, like, how would that just move your ranking up? Could, could it be a well from five years ago? Could it be a well from 15 years ago? Um, it's hard to say. Um, but, of course, the other thing is that, like, we have a regime in place, and that regime has toggles. Like, you can toggle it up and you can toggle it down. Right now, under the new liability regime that came in, you know, uh, then Energy Minister Sonia Savage admitted essentially that all the liability regimes that we've had in place, the regulations, have been a failure, that they were a disaster, that they allowed this massive accumulation of, of what we refer to as inactive wells. These are wells that aren't producing, but they're not abandoned properly. They haven't been reclaimed. Um, we have about 85,000 on the landscape. We have the orphan wells. Um, so she admitted the old system was bad. She introduced essentially a very, like, essentially the same system with some marginal changes. In some ways, it's actually worse than the old one. It's, it's much less transparent. But one of the things they did introduce is this idea of mandatory closure spending. And it was like on a three- or four-year rolling basis. And so they put out those, those targets, and, and some of us looked at them, and they're essentially just like a regurgitation of historical patterns, right? So, so in a sense, it's like, well, if the problem was that we weren't spending enough on cleanup, using historical uh, spending targets to set your future ones isn't going to work. The province could crank those spending targets way up right now you know like get on it crank those up and that will force well closure that will put that will get jobs rolling there'll be a ton of jobs suddenly and in, in, in well abandonment and re- remediation and reclamation um there's also the problem with the orphan wells as you mentioned so we we've, we've never industry has never really put enough money into the Orphan Well uh, Association. And, and so what we've seen, in fact, is that in the last five years, you get interest-free loans from the federal and provincial governments. I think the provincial government gave something like close to $300 million. The federal government gave something like close to $500 million. And so, in fact, currently in the Orphan Well Association, sort of like when you look at the cumulative amount of money that they've received, there's more government money in there in the form of loans than there has historically been in terms of the industry levy. So it's just like 
it's it's just it's so obvious what the problem here is um and it and it's just kind of i think but, but i think in some respects like we've we've managed like all the policy to date has been kind of like smoke and mirrors and just kind of like oh we're going to do this we're going to do that I think the reason why there's so much criticism about our star or whatever they're going to call it now is just that it's just like it's the most blatant example of of essentially using public money uh, to support the sector. And, and, and it's just at a particularly, you know, I think, inconvenient time for them where, of course, they're making record profits and they've made record profits. Well, and you make an interesting point about the options we have available because it seems part of the justification for this is that we have no choice but to you know think outside the box or, or think creative because uh, everything else has has failed and we don't have any other choice. But you know, as you say, that that's not the case, is it? It's not the case, and and then that goes back to something that I mentioned at the beginning. So there are two tools that jurisdictions and other places, other jurisdictions use. One is bonding, like putting up security. So when you want to build, a, you want to drill a well, you actually have to put money aside. Um, maybe it's not the whole amount, but it's an amount determined based on, you know, probable cleanup costs and all that kind of stuff. And so we've never really done that in Alberta to record, you know, but for the, like the least stable financially uh, companies. And so, so that's one problem that we never had. Like, and so, right, if you take that money in form of security, well, then a company has an incentive to clean it up because it wants that money back. Right. And it only gets that money back once it's cleaned up. And the other one is time limits. Right. So you say there's going to be you can only have an because this is the big problem with the inactive wells. Right. They're they're not properly closed. They're not remediated, but they're not producing. And they can stay that way for like there's no time limit in Alberta. And so, of course, we have this like ballooning inventory of, of, of inactive wells. And so we didn't take those steps every time they've been discussed and they have been discussed in the province industry pushes back and says we don't want those we don't want time limits we don't want um we don't want hard security they talk about this idea of area-based uh you know they, they, they like this idea where area-based closure so they they say well because it's expensive and inefficient to move machinery all around the province based on the age of a well let us move through areas like a chunk at a time right where we can get efficiencies from having that all those um all that machinery in and around the same place that might be okay. I, I don't have a problem in principle with area-based closure, but then, like, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it in a meaningful way. Um, we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that meaningful improvement. And, and the, bit of, the bit of improvement we have seen in the last couple of years, I mean, we had close to $2 billion in federal, in federal and provincial funding right. injected, right, into the, into, the, into the sector. Like, that can't be okay, right? Like it, and so, again, it just, and it's just this really weird disconnect between what Albertans think about themselves, the idea that we're supposed to, we're hardworking in Alberta, we're entrepreneurial, we're, we don't believe in big government, uh, everyone's supposed to sort of just be like successful, right, hard work, success, and yet you have a, a sector that appears to be, frankly, like addicted, hooked on public monies to help it out, whether it's the war room or it's interest-free loans or other forms of, 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 of money, public money, and I and I just think it's I just think maybe finally this this proposal just kind of like makes that all plain in in a way that just like it's that it becomes a the contradiction becomes impossible to ignore. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. We'll leave it there for now, Martin. Appreciate uh, the insight on this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. You're very welcome, Rob. Good luck. There you go. Martin Olzinski, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Calgary. And we spoke recently, too, with uh, Andrew Leach, energy economist at the University of Alberta, who, who wrote about this. Here's part of the problem as he sees it. So right now, for example, there's about $2.4 billion in cleanup liabilities that are currently on the books of insolvent.
but not yet bankrupt companies. So those are going to, to be orphan wells at some point, right? So that, that's, that's just going to make the problem worse. But he says R-Star is not going to do much to solve the problem. For, most, for the most distressed companies, a government gift that reduces their liabilities by 30% isn't going to make them solvent. The R-Star subsidy will go mostly to healthy companies with large reclamation liabilities. More than 85% of cleanup liabilities are held by companies in strong financial positions. These companies have a lot of required cleanup work to do and the money to do it. But now they'll get a bonus through R-Star for doing it. So R-Star penalizes firms that already did what they were supposed to do. And they'll get less from R-Star than they would that if they had allowed their liabilities to accumulate. The R-Star program would reward big companies based on how big a part of the problem they are. So is that, is that the right way to go about this? I'm not so sure. Hey, folks, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. We'll talk more later about the objects, whatever we're referring to them as, whatever they were. The three that have been shot down since that Chinese spy balloon was shot down. So we'll talk a bit more about... You know, what we should make of all of this. What does it tell us about North American uh, air defense? NORAD specifically, we'll have more on that coming up later on. A few other things to get to as well. Off the top of this hour, though, an interesting perspective on, on the impact uh, of carbon pricing and other environmental policies that, that by design do make things more expensive. Now, in, in the case of uh, carbon pricing, there is supposed to be the offset uh, of the rebates, but does that capture all of the impact? And how does that affect various communities across the country? Maybe one aspect of that conversation that's been left out is the impact on First Nations and on reserves specifically. Something our next guest has written about an interesting op-ed on how the carbon tax is exacerbating the affordability problems uh, that come with life on the reserve in this country. And what kind of issues uh, the federal government might be running into here regarding its obligations uh, under the Indian Act when it comes to First Nations. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about these issues, uh, the author of this op-ed, Stephen Buffalo, is president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Mr. Buffalo, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, what prompted you to write this? I mean, is, is part of the concern, I guess, on your part is that we're really not talking about some of these issues that, that affect First Nations as it pertains to the carbon tax. Well, you know, it, it, it definitely impacts what, what's happening in the world today. And, and of course, you know, the, the carbon tax is just another something that we, I, I feel we shouldn't have been paying. You know, um, through history and through the Indian Act, you know, as, as a card-carrying status First Nation individual in Canada, we're, we're not supposed to be paying taxes, especially in our communities, uh, you know, seeing that the Natural Resource Transfer Act and all that, 1930, it was passed, and we gave up our resources, and you know, that's that's a different different pot of coffee. But at the end of the day, you know, this this tax or this layering or this leverage, uh, uh, whatever they want to call it, is, is definitely hurting hurting where we're at today. You know, uh, the, the financial commitment from the federal government through the Indian Act, obviously, th- this is just another way to step on our throats more or less it's it, it's it's really uh it, it's 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 definitely hurting us in all capacities you know a lot of, a lot of our leaderships in our communities pay for the elders uh their, their heating bill it's in the it's in the heating bill uh, oh, yeah. when our when our entities uh 
our gas stations when we purchase the fuel it's in the fuel it's in the it's in the price it's layered in the pricing and and it's it's just really unfair and and the hard part is that like the, the members of the Indian Resource Council we were never consulted about this and it, it it's it's hard to to take it on when when things are getting tighter and, and the inflation's going up and everything and it's just making it really difficult Right, it's interesting, and you know the, the defenders of the policy would say, "Well, there's there's the rebate that comes along with the carbon tax, but that that's not the reality for for a lot of folks living on on reserves in these First Nations." Yeah, you know the like you know majority of the nation members, you know, like first off, you know the poverty levels are a little bit higher, and, and uh, nine times out of ten, when you're under the Indian Act, when you're receiving uh, when you get a job, you're, you're you're not paying income tax, and and that's just but just accept the fact that's just what happens. And, and and of course, when you file your income tax, you know, you're supposed to get this rebate back. But, you know, the, the level of the rebate is, is nowhere near to really take on what's being charged against us now. Uh, you know, just the cost of living is, is going through the roof. It's And, and, and to deal with this, uh, when and it shouldn't have been added in, is, is becoming more difficult. So it's kind of an infringement on some rights. And, and, you know, when you have a prime minister that said that there's no relationship more important, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I'm not sure that's the case here. Yeah, no kidding. It's an interesting point you make in your piece as well, that it, it's, you know, it's, it seems almost disproportionate to a lot of these communities because they are remote and, and more northern. So there's the challenge of, of heating in, in, you know, northern climates. But, of course, just having to, to run any kind of errand, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of driving that, that's involved. So there's a lot of ways in which the carbon tax, you know, really hits these communities. Oh, yeah. You know, just to even go to town to get groceries or, or you know, medical appointments, uh, things like that. You know, uh, we, we have contractors, too. And, and when you're utilizing services, you know, nine times out of ten, it's, it's going to be a, a, a fuel truck or a diesel truck. And, and to move these, these goods and services, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult. And even to compete, you know, as, I guess as a contractor, if you've got some sort of equipment, field services, what have you, you know, the fuel prices are going through the roof just like everybody else. And, and, and it's, it's making it extremely difficult to not scrape out a living, you know, and when you have young entrepreneurs uh, trying, to, trying to do something, even simply driving a bus, you know, it, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult. And, and of course, you know, uh, the only thing I can say would justify a carbon tax is that if we had four, four pipelines nationally in, in Canada, and, and you know, then uh, the way it looks, you know, from my vantage point is that, you know, yeah, we went through COVID and the government needed to spend some money. We can say that, you know, but at the end of the day, we're paying it back on on, on everybody, on the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when we have offtake, when we have takeaway capacity for our natural resources, maybe a tar- carbon tax is justified, you know, uh, to, to uh, industry primarily, but it shouldn't be on the back of Canadians. And it's even more hard. It's a lot more difficult for the First Nations in Canada to deal with it. Right. And so in, in terms of that connection, then, and being able to, to generate jobs and wealth and the opportunity to partner with First Nations, then uh, that would certainly leave residents in a much better position to, to deal with all of these costs, right, if we had that kind of development happening? Oh, for sure. You know, you're seeing a trend, you know, where industry is opening the door to these partnerships. You've seen our previous uh, Premier Jason Kenney give the opportunity here in Alberta through the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation to be 
equity owners, investment owners in, in certain projects and what have you. And, you know, it's starting to come to to that place where, you know, we're, we're getting rid of some of these uh, barriers that used to be there. And we're working towards, you know, providing what we can for the world in the in the terms of energy. You know, but, but this is, is becoming a, really a burden. And it, it's, it's very hard on our people to, to, to see it and to accept the fact, you know. And, and the hard part now is, is, is finding the way to kind of get through it. You know, uh, I, I think our federal government is really taking the initiative and the approach to phase out fossil fuels, oil and gas, and, and move towards renewable. But it, it's becoming more and more expensive to do that. Oh, yeah. So what should the path look like instead? What would your advice to the prime minister be? Well, you know, like I said, you know, we, we, we don't have takeaway capacity for our oil and gas. And, and uh, right now the world, the whole world, the planet is crying for natural gas, be it liquefied natural gas, LNG. And, and uh, is it cleaner than coal? Absolutely. Uh, are we helping to protect the planet if we export LNG? I think so. You know, but um, it, it's, 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 it's a long way going forward. You know, we, we have to work together on these things. We have to be cognizant of uh, protecting Mother Earth and then uh, move towards different uh, areas of uh, you know, finding ways to help our people. Uh, and, and to be honest, the Indian Act does no favors to the First Nations in Canada. You know, the federal budget announced... $11 billion over six years, that's about $1.8 billion a year for 643 First Nations to really try to, to live on. And, and when we're sending money for humanitarian purposes all over the world and we can't deal with clean water for some of the communities in Canada, I scratch my head, you know, and, and I, I wonder why. But uh, going forward, I, I think we have to look at different models, uh, be it resource revenue sharing, with the provinces and with the federal government, municipalities, you know, it, it's it's just a way to get rid of this this uh, this, this Indian Act. You know, I, I always tell people communism is alive and well in Canada. Just ask any First Nation. You know, the Indian Act is so it's, it's so binding and, and, and it, it's really help. It's it's not helping us, and, and we're having a hard time get out of this this rut and then move towards creating wealth, jobs, you know, healthier lives. And, and getting away from these uh, pathologies uh, the, the media really likes talking about. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for now, Stephen. Much more the Indian Resource Council, ircanada.ca. Appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Stephen Buffalo, President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, also Senior Fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute, McDonald-Laurier.ca. So his piece uh, from a few days ago here, Life on the Reserve is already unaffordable. The carbon tax makes it worse. And he points out that, you know, last year, the Auditor General noted this as well, that Indigenous groups are disproportionately burdened by carbon pricing. So he says that this approach doesn't really line up with the kind of rhetoric from the prime minister about the relationship with First Nation. It makes the argument, look, 50, Section 57 of the Indian Act is pretty clear with regard to taxation. And yet the federal government's applying this anyway. You've got the reality in a lot of First Nations that you know, folks aren't, aren't eligible for the rebates. So they're paying the cost and, and not getting that offset. And, you know, these are northern remote communities that rely on, on home heating and driving to run everyday basic kind of errands, groceries, uh, doctor's appointments, etc. But oftentimes they've got a long way to go. So that's kind of maybe what the Auditor General is getting at, you know, in the report that says indigenous groups are being disproportionately burdened 
by carbon pricing. So how does that approach line up with, again, the lofty rhetoric of the prime minister when it comes to the relationship with First Nations? And again, you know, as Stephen Buffalo said, as the Indian Resource Council advocates, is an approach that, that builds on our energy capability, that creates opportunities and partnerships with and for First Nations to help address some of these issues. So right, not only is, is he making the argument here that the prime minister's policies are exacerbating some of these challenges on First Nations, that their policies aren't doing enough to generate you know, the wealth and opportunities that, that, that are really necessary. So some interesting perspective there. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.